actually had a question about the numbers on the uniforms. Did you get to make them up? Yeah, I did make up those numbers, and all the numbers begin with, it's a five-digit number beginning with three. And so my best friend's birthday is on Morgan Freeman's shirt. Ever wondered what the creative process is behind the films, TV shows, and theatre productions you watch? Well, Crew Chats is a new podcast going behind the scenes and chatting to the crew that help make these productions. I'm Boonam and I usually work in the costume department. Whenever I tell people what I do, they're always fascinated. So I thought, wouldn't it be cool to hear more from the wonderful people who work behind the scenes to make the films and shows we all love? Today's guest is Matt Reitzmer, who studied at the Rhode Island School of Design with the intention of studying fashion, but later transferred to textiles when he found he had a passion for it. After graduating, Matt moved home to Philadelphia to set up a print studio and began working for the Philadelphia Philadelphia Opera Company, and thereafter working for many theatres on both the East and West Coast of America. After working for a number of years in textile departments for theatres, Matt transitioned into the film world in Los Angeles, beginning with some dying on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. This exposed him to film designers and supervisors, which subsequently led to working for designers such as Deborah Scott and Colleen Atwood. As a part of his working practices, Matt is aiming to reduce waste in his work processes by trying to reduce water waste and to decrease use of toxic chemicals in order to create a more sustainable and healthier working environment. Matt splits his time between the States and the UK and has worked on productions such as Titanic, Memories of Acacia, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them and Dumbo to name a few. Hi Matt. Hey Poonam. Um, thank you for coming on to the podcast. Yeah. Um, I'm excited. Um, so I'm <laughs> going to start with a very basic question which is you're a textile artist. Um, what does that involve? So I am more so now than before like doing prints specifically for films like a costume designer will ask me to do prints for a film but my role sort of runs everything from painting, dyeing, aging, and printing for a film, okay. for costumes. Ah, okay, cool. And just because you touched upon the printing, dyeing, and aging, um, I know we a mutual friend of ours, Steph, was on yes. an early episode and sort of briefly spoke about those things. If you could sort of go through um, what those are and how they work in, in from your perspective. So... A lot of times the, the show will start off with this like prep period where we are given a certain amount of fabrics that need to be dyed or somehow organized for the, the film. So a lot of times we'll get the fabric, we'll dye it. Um, the designer might want the fabric printed. So taking raw yardage from usually white to a color, then getting it out onto the table where we'll either silk screen it or hand paint it or stencil it or something it so that we're getting the fabric prepped to go into the actual costume shop to be cut and made into the costumes so that's sort of like the prep stage of stuff and then a lot of times the finished garment will come back to us for aging and giving it sort of the character of the character in the in the script and you know, sort of maybe watching that that costume through production to see how it progresses through the storyline. Or a lot of times it might be just restoring it back, like trying to get it back to what it was because you're staying sort of in the same time period for a certain amount of time. So it always has to remain looking one way before it transitions on to looking another way. Oh. Um, so, yeah, it's, an, it's sort of a, a mix of all that in a nutshell yeah. 
the aging process I find a lot of and a lot of other guests have actually said this is actually the almost the finishing element to a costume isn't it I well at least kind of it kind of gives it that worn real feeling I guess yeah yeah it's funny how much it can kind of snap some life into the garment a lot of times it looks so pristine and you kind of don't want to touch it but <laughs> you know that the character you know wouldn't be wearing that right off the hanger they'd be they would have worked in it or lived in it or you know had some life in it before you were ever to see it so it's nice to bring that to the garment it's nice to sort of it, it does sort of really just pull that costume together and you can kind of not look at it as a costume anymore you can you just sort of you shouldn't really recognize it and just assume it's their own clothing like it's their thing I guess that is the aim isn't it yeah Um, so people may have recognized from your accent that you have an American accent (laughs) (laughs) you've worked you worked all over the world um but you started your career in um the states so I'm going to circle back to that and I'm going to ask how did you get into the textile world for textiles for film I really sort of fell into it accidentally I went to school for fashion and then I transferred into textiles because I wanted to or I took a textiles class because I wanted to print my own fabrics for fashion and ultimately and when I got into studying textiles it just really clicked for me and it was just like this is what I want to be doing like this is specifically the the most interesting thing and I just love it like I just want to learn more do more that's this it really just clicked for me and when I finished school I returned home which I'm grew up outside of Philadelphia and sort of sent my portfolio out to whoever I could think of and one of the people that I sent it out to was the costume designer from the opera company in Philadelphia and they he the designer responded and just like coincidentally was doing a production that was a new build and they really wanted to print sort of these pop art images like in the style in the style of Roy Lichtenstein so that really sort of dot matrix cartoon bubble print sort of stuff and I was like yeah I can do that I don't see why you know I don't see why I can't do that so that was my first sort of experience working in costumes and that designer ended up sort of taking me under his wing and saying like there is this field called you know within costumes for theater there's painter dyers and we you know we need painter dyers in our field and if you're interested in pursuing it you could do this summer stock this sort of sort of internship in santa fe new mexico the opera company there sort of brings in designers and sets up a costume shop and set building shop and there's this whole sort of internship uh, set up around producing operas and I went and did that and that sort of brought me into the world of opera and eventually theater and I started working in that for a while which eventually took me to the west coast um, working at a, a theater company in just outside of San Diego and there I met designers from LA who were coming down to do summer stock and one of them I said I was interested in going to Los Angeles to work is there you know a place for people like me and 
<laughs> and he said, yeah, there's like, there's, there's a, a dye shop that does specific work for film. And, you know, I could introduce you to the woman that owns that. And I ended up working for her for a year and worked on like, uh, I just remember it was like such a immediate, like going from theater into, I was just, I worked as a dyer. And the first thing I dyed was um, some spandex for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I was just like, wow, this is going to be fabric for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> <laughs> it was just so funny. And then um, working there, got some, you know, designers would come to her to discuss color and to see that whole world of it and, and their process. And um, it was it was actually that same designer that told me about coming up to LA had asked me to tech some lace, which is um, you, you're given a piece of white fabric and you're sort of just softening the whiteness of it. You're just barely dyeing it to sort of take the edge off of it for film. So it's not like really blingy. And he gave me a piece of lace to tech and I didn't know what that was. And then he explained to what he, what he wanted. And I did this sort of what I felt was like this imperceptible shift in color. He was like, yep, oh, wait, maybe too much. And I was like, really? Like, that's too much? <laughs> like, it was like such a nothing jump. And then it became a huge thing when you, when I transitioned to film, like a ton of our work was constantly teching and this sort of like reserve and, and the way you hold back in film in your sort of in your dying, in your aging with film is sort of you're sort of holding back. And when you're in theater, you're working sort of much bolder and you're, um, yeah, it's just sort of a heavier hand in a way, but in, in just as an interesting way, it's just sort of like the restriction just seems a little bit more, or the perception of light just seems different with film. Like your, your shift is much more tight and uh, calculated. And the, so, you know, I was doing like all this teching and stuff and meeting designers and supervisors and runners and people that were coming in. And that's sort of what brought me to LA. And it wasn't like an immediate shift into working into film. There was like a bouncing back between theater, opera, film for a while, and eventually sort of got into doing film full time. But it was, it was a long slog. It, was like, <laughs> it, took, it, took, it took a really long time to sort of get there it felt like and it was weird because you had this or I had this feeling of like I know I know my job is needed like I know people are looking for fabrics to be dyed why can't I just walk in somewhere and get the job <laughs> you know it's just it was just sort of like you had to wait to, until you had that like perfect moment that perfect connection yeah. and and then it just all sort of it all happened really quickly after that slotted into place um so and you've had you've worked on a, like a wide variety of jobs um theater or film and I imagine in your career like most of us there will have been moments whereby you have there's been a bit of a mistake that's happened or things just haven't gone right um what is the importance of those um learning from those mistakes and actually sometimes getting and gaining some new information um, or techniques from that mistake? After I finished working at the Dye House in LA, 
sort of down the line, I eventually met a supervisor that I had previously met. And she asked me if I could print the, the prison numbers on the uh, prisoners' uniforms for Shawshank Redemption. And I was like, yeah, easy. You know, like, it's just, it's, they were just like sort of stenciled numbers and it sort of worked out. And that was, that that's how it started working for them. And then she asked me about teching. Could I tech the shirts? And not really thinking about quantity, like thinking, I'd never been on a film where I really was around that amount of background. You know, she sent me the first 20 and it was like, I, I tech 20 prisoner shirts. And then she sent me another 20 and then she sent me 50 and then she sent me 200. And, you know, it was just sort of like it, the numbers quickly got out of hand for me. Oh, wow. And I had sort of a, a master of what the designer liked as a tech color that I was always matching to, but I was always sort of batch dyeing these groups and then sending them on. And I don't, I never really paid attention to the fact that it was like, oh yeah, that seems close enough. And then I'd send that. <laughs> and then like, yeah, that sounds close enough. And then that, you know, and then the supervisor called, it was a shooting on location outside of Los Angeles, like, well, in another state. And um, the supervisor called me on it and, and said, like, we unpacked all and dressed all our extras in the prisoners' uniforms. And it's the first day we've seen them all out in the yard. And there's a huge sort of, she didn't say discrepancy, but she's like, there's a real mix of color in the texts that are out there. You know, some are a little bit warmer than others, some are a little bit cooler than others. And she was, she was saying in a nice way, they were kind of all over the place. And I was sort of beginning to like gulp and sweat, like, ooh, like, oh. I, wasn't thinking, <laughs> I, was like, I wasn't thinking that far ahead. And she was like, the DP looked at it and was just like, so appreciative that there was so much variation in the field that it didn't sort of dampen the the set to like everyone in clothes will be this color and the the set is going to look this color he really appreciated the fact that there was this discrepancy discrepancy in color and it was something that i always sort of went oh like you know that mistake was a good thing and it's something that i've always held on to and it's something that i always when i'm working with a designer especially for the first time is talk about like this is a uniform. Is this uniform? They are all 100% the same color, or are some uniforms young, uh, you know, older than others, or have they been around longer? Would there be a difference in color lot? Like, would there be? Do you want to tell time with their with that uniform? And you know, sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes the answer is no. But it's it helped me see the bigger picture of the background that you really are sort of laying a color field in and does that color field really need to be all the same color everyone's taking care of their clothes in a different way or are some people are neater and more tidier than others like there's going to be that differentiation is that going to help make that scene look more real by offering up that differentiation but I do discuss it now. I don't just sort of go ahead to <laughs> my 60 different shades of white. Um, <laughs> thing that helps paint a scene. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think there's such, I, again, like I think when we're watching something, you don't really think about those things because they're kind of, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But it makes so much sense that you would have asked or, you know, you would have thought about whether they've, like you say, whether they've looked after their uniform or they've been there a longer period of time. Those questions are so like valuable in, like, to think about mm. those things, because I guess it, like you say, it helps you paint a, ma- a bigger picture because um, you never see these things in isolation you're never going to see a uniform in an ice in isolation unless right. that's the plan obviously a bigger plan for the character whatever it is but rarely with those with mostly with those things you see them in a in a kind of wider shot in groups and yeah it's yeah. such a, va- a valuable thing to consider yeah. um i actually had a question about the numbers on the uniforms did you get to make them up or uh, yeah i did ah. make up those numbers and at first i was like oh this is great like I'll make all these numbers like all my friends' birthdays. So I was like, just like at the on the first run, I was doing all these different numbers, all these one-offs. And then the I got I heard from the costume designer like actually they've researched it further and they want a specific series. And all the numbers begin with it's a five-digit number beginning with three. And so they just have you keep sort of a list of all the numbers that you've printed. And eventually I started getting the multiple shirts. And so for the multiple shirts, I had friends that had birthdays beginning with three. So um, my best friend's birthday is on Morgan Freeman's shirt. And um, it's funny, she was like, I can't even watch that film without thinking, like be, without being so distracted by that. It's just one of those sort of funny things that... Yeah, I think it's really nice to think there's a part of you in that film. That's a, like a really... It's <laughs> a nice thing. <laughs> that's super cool. That'd be like my fun fact. You know, if someone asks you for a fun fact, I'd be like, that's my fun yeah. fact. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that nowadays, it's like the all the numbers would come in from the higher-ups. Like, mm-hmm. okay, you know, art department has researched this, and the following numbers are the numbers to be used. Like, it would all have been all thought about and it's just like that was just one of those sort of accidental like oh wouldn't it be funny if (laughs) that's pretty cool um um, how important is your relationship with designers I think it's I mean it's really up to the designer how much they want to involve you in their work and I think a lot of designers do want to involve the people that make their costumes in their work so it begins with them I mean I sort of offer up the skills that I have And if they want to discuss them or see how we can push them or what we can do, it's up to them. But once once they start asking, I'm happy to talk about it. You know, it's just like like (laughs) once they sort of if they're interested, I'm interested. Mm -hmm. So I, I take my lead from them. I can provide so much more focused work if the designer is sort of feeding me information. You know, when you're dying something, if there's there's a point where things might look really good, and if yeah. the designer's there, you can kind of have that discussion. It's like, this looks kind of cool. What do you think of that? And if the designer's there, they can say like, yay or nay to whether or not that's good, as opposed to sort of just being handed something to color match. You could be getting more out of it. You yeah, could be, you're making you, the most you, out you, of the designs. So working with a designer that wants to discuss things, I think sort of certainly makes me want to provide them with, with what they want, but also look, you know, look for the answers. Like if I can't, don't feel like I'm getting it, um, maybe from something that they've said, 
I'm, I'm going to push it and just try and answer that question, like just try and figure out how to give them what they want or what they've discussed. Yeah, no, that makes sense because you can sort of take their designs with your knowledge and take them to another level that they, they may not know is possible. Yeah. I know you're quite conscious of the waste and toxic element of your job. How has that journey been and what kind of things because you have a lot of technical and practical knowledge how have you used those to sort of make the process of what you do in your day-to-day a bit more friendly to the environment yeah it's something that it's funny when I started out in theater the theater that theater company that I or the opera company that I went to work for in Santa Fe because it was sort of like a training school or it was like a teaching there was a teaching element involved to the the building process they had a they had a seminar like a, it was like the first health and safety seminar i had ever been to and this is like in the late 80s like 86 or 88 something like that and they had a woman come in from new york who was a a chemist who talked about the chemicals that we use in theater just from solvents like acetone and alcohols and IPA and all that sort of stuff to the spray paints we might use to the dyes we might use, you know, all these sort of to the glues we use, all these sort of things. And really just put a fine point of like all those things that smell aren't good for you. Like (laughs) you need to be aware that these, these products are going to be a part of your life now and you need to sort of be careful with them. But she really drove home the point of, you know, how necessary is it to use those things? And I think that it's a common thread that I find painter dyers, textile artists, people in our fields, like in the making field, how we try as much to use like the least toxic things that we can find. So that sort of early health and safety meeting sort of imprinted this idea of like, use the least volatile in any situation. Like, and when you do need to use something volatile, understand it um, and protect yourself or use as little of it as possible. And from that, it grew into sort of of seeing how we, like me as a dyer, we're using a huge amount of water and is there a way to use less water to dye what we're dying? Um, is there a way to think of your dye bath sort of progressively? Can you start your day with your light fabrics and your day with your dark fabrics, but essentially using the same bath, like like just strengthening it, darkening it, shifting it? Um, there's a lot of um, ways you can alter your bath to run a lot of colors and to kind of think that way when you're dying like what's what's the best way i can dye all these fabrics but use the least amount of materials so that i'm dumping less wastewater there is still the issue of i mean just textiles and dyeing in general we use a lot of water like flat out which i haven't there's sort of not a way around that yet but there are some ways to use less water and to just try and keep that in mind as I'm working. And it just seems to be, it's coming up more and more now. Like how yeah, can we be more sustainable, use less toxic materials? And there is the possibility. I think 
all of us try now to focus yeah. more on using healthier options than toxic options. Yeah, definitely. And it's like you, you just don't want to be around that because we're we'll be the the amount that you work, you're around it all the time. It's not perfect. There's there's always times you're going to have to use products you don't want to use, yeah. but I try to use them as infrequently as possible yeah I definitely I, I think there's I, I think it's kind of hard to eat that reach that point of perfection but I think if, like you've said if you're making steps like I think we all kind of make like even if they're small steps I think it's a really mm. uh, valuable direction to go in because um, not only for our personal like for our personal health it's great as well those around us but also just generally it's um, a good step but it is a it's quite as you mentioned it's a big conversation at the moment happening waste and yeah waste in the film and the creative industries I guess but I know it's a conversation yeah. on jobs that I've been on definitely so yeah no, it's interesting to see because I think um usually there are sometimes it's unavoidable like you say you have to use some of those things because they just sometimes are the ones that are always just going to work yeah. but um yeah where we can mitigate it I think it's definitely worth and it also allows you to be creative I guess like you mentioned just there kind of having that work around allowed you to be kind of problem solved in a way which may not have necessarily happened if you weren't if you're willing yeah. to use yeah definitely I think it's a move in the right direction um Mm. which actually that kind of brings me to my next question which is um so the biggest something that where it's been like a a challenging project or a challenging uh, brief or piece that's been given to you and then how have you overcome that challenge I've Colleen Atwood did memoirs of geisha and she hired me to do that And my first reaction to that was like, I have no real concrete knowledge of Japanese textiles. Like I don't, I don't know the process. I don't know the sort of the the language of it. It's like, I know a little bit about it. And I started sort of looking into it and, and realized that there's like with kimono, a huge amount specifically from that sort of time period was done in this katazomi technique, which is a rice paste resist, which are sort of, it's sort of like a very early form of silkscreen. So that, so that Memoirs of Geisha was really intimidating because I had to learn quickly um, this katazomi technique and then apply it to film that demands, you know, sort of quick turnaround. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky enough to study with a kimono master like they gave me sort of like a week. This is the first time it happened. Like production, we're okay with me going to study with a kimono master. Still in the States, not in Japan. But, <laughs> but in the States. Um, he taught me the technique and then was willing to sort of listen to my side of it. Because his technique was very sort of laborious and very process oriented. And created these amazing results. But he would make his own soy milk and that soy milk would be his binder for the pigments, which he taught me. And he was just like, you know, and he showed me kimono that he had done and the hand was really beautiful. The fabric felt great. It had a really beautiful depth of color. And he was like, yeah, so after I do this, I set them in my loft for six months to cure. And then, you know, and then I wash them out and they have this beautiful hand. And it was like, right. I don't have six months, (laughs) you know, I'm going to have to use commercial pigments and commercial binders to do this. Still could use that, you know, basically skipping the soy idea 
um, although I used it on some pieces that I knew would sit. But um, but using a commercial product to do this traditional technique. Um, so that was, you know, it was great to have that experience of working with someone who had been doing it for years, who was willing to talk to me about it as someone who was going to need to, you know, really fast track the process for film. Yeah. And for us to talk to talk as two textile artists and how we would, you know, what his technique was and what my technique was and how could we come up with this hybrid technique. So that was a cool, like it was intimidating at first. We figured out a way around it and then ultimately there was a solution and it was great. Like I felt good about the challenge. But what I also took away from that challenge was, and what we did to some extent on that film was we started hand cutting our own stencils, which is a common technique to do a stencil silk screen mm-hmm. instead of a photo silk screen. But that sort of idea of using stencil for silk screen sort of stuck with me and sort of lightly touching back on the chemicals and sustainability issue was if I could come up with a way to do stencils on silk screen and not use photo um, chemicals, I would be sidestepping that process, sidestepping the dark room, not using those chemicals to do, you know, simple mm-hmm. silk screen, yeah. Um, yeah. only use that that process when it was absolutely necessary, is how I got into sort of cutting stencils by um, vinyl plotter for silk screen instead of using, using photo silk screen process for everything. So that was a way that I sort of pushed the process further, like what I learned on Geisha I used to, I learned to use in everyday work life, but it also, the benefit was that I wasn't always relying on photo silkscreen chemicals to get me there. I was working with stencils, which were at least entirely in the water-based line of world, of, of the world. I wasn't using any chemicals in the print process at that point. So that was kind of a great solution there, like challenge solution. And then, you know, fast forward to now where I still use that stencil process, but for my photo silkscreen process, I use a digital silkscreen process that sidesteps the photo, that I can get the quality of a photo silkscreen, which if you're photo silkscreening something, you can get incredible detail, which you couldn't get in the stencil process. Now in this digital process, which again is without chemical, um, you can get as good of a quality print from the digital process that you can with the photo silkscreen process, but it's still old school, classic silkscreening. We're not talking like digital printing of fabrics, which is a whole different thing. I think it's, um, and other people have mentioned it on other episodes in relation to their own field, but how traditional methods of say, in this case, printing, silkscreen printing, are then kind of, you have this new age sort of technology, which aids you, and streamlines that process obviously for some things the traditional process may work better like you say but and also it's just interesting to see how digitization is but how it's incorporated into something in which a field in which we're all kind of using our hands to create something and our aids are so I think yeah I probably there's that I imagine the the world in which we work will be going that way slowly more and more maybe new kind of um, innovations yeah so have you ever been given a really odd task has there been like what's been the oddest thing you've been asked to do 
Well, the odd things are usually like, okay, well, we're going to do a nude scene, but you need to dye, you know, underwear to match the actor's skin. But so it's not like you can say, like, can I see your skin? You know, like, (laughs) can I see how, you know, show me your belly? Like, (laughs) what's your color under your shirt? So it's that weird sort of like surreptitiously going on set, looking at the actor, trying to figure out their skin tone you know, kind of try and remember that, take it back, do some swatches that then the designer can take to the actor and sort of hold against their skin. The designers have far more personal relationships with the actors than we would. At least I get it like sort of jumping off point to like do a couple of couple sample, like skin samples, and then the designer can fine tune it for me. Sounds like you've worked out a good process for getting the skin color match. (laughs) What do you love most about your job? Well, I think I've, I've been listening to your podcast and, oh, thank you. <laughs> and I've really been enjoying it. But I, I entirely relate with the concept of I love the fact that it changes. I love the fact that sometimes it's a period piece. Sometimes it's a science fiction piece. Sometimes it's all fantasy. Um, even, you know, su- you know, superhero, like it's everything. It, everything brings a different element to it that you can get really excited about and and at the same time be happy to not do on the next project you know <laughs> it's like you you can really really get into the process knowing that it's not going to be that process for the next you know 10 years it's going to be for this production and it it'll change on the next one it'll be something else it'll be something different and that will become the exciting thing and I love the challenge of it like you know that same sort of like gulp that I had when Colleen asked me to do Geisha was like yeah I'll do it and then it was just sort of like but how (laughs) so I like the challenge of it and the figuring it out and learning it and I think that if it doesn't scare me maybe that's when I realize I've, I've had enough like I don't know as long as I'm as long as I'm scared on the production, <laughs> it'll be okay. I guess it gives you a buzz, doesn't it? Is that well, yeah? As long as you get really, that feeling at the beginning, it's nice to have that. Yeah, that okay. This is going to be a challenge. This will be interesting. This is how I'm going to try and approach it. And yeah, I do. I really enjoy that part of it. Oh, I think I think most of us in it. Um, I think, we, like you said, most people do say that is one of the biggest perks of the job. Yeah. The, and they, isn't the phrase like variety is the spice of life? I'm sure it's really cheesy of me to say, but I think yeah. probably all of us would agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this brings me on to my final question, which is what are your three favorite to watch recommendations? I'm, I'm going for four. Yeah, but... go for it. <laughs> so the first one is sort of personal. Like, I love the movie Babette's Feast. Like, I love the the whole story of it. I don't know if you've seen it. I haven't. Um, I, I know it's just like, that's one common element I have to say in your podcast is pretty much, I don't think you watch enough film, Poonam. Yeah, I know. I was waiting for someone <laughs> to call me out on this. Because I, I, I think I watch a fair few things, but every, literally every guest that's come on, most of the things that they mention, I'm like, nope, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that. It's just so terrible, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's become my favorite part. It's just like, oh, I haven't seen that. Whenever anyone's saying their stories, I just love that. <laughs> but I'm I, glad I, you enjoy I, it. Because... <laughs> 
it's like, especially now during COVID, you're like, you know, I feel like I've watched everything, but then you get this alternative view from someone else. It's like, oh, these are my three favorite films. It's like, oh, okay. I haven't, yeah. I haven't seen that or I haven't, or I should revisit that. Like that's, yeah. it's a good, it's a good alternate. But um, so Babette's Feast for me, I just love this story. It's a woman who's working for a family in Denmark. Denmark. It's a period picture. It's, I want to say it's 1860, something like that. But I could be entirely wrong about that. But um, a woman from France goes to work for a family in Denmark as a cook. And she just cooks the same old thing every day. And she learns that she's won the the French lottery. Everyone assumes she's like, she's made it now. She's going to go off and retire. And she asks to cook a meal for the family that's, you know, basically she's been working for, but has also rescued her from the war. Um, and she makes this incredible meal that they would never, ever, ever have. And the family that she works for is a very sort of pious Protestant family. And they look at food as enjoyment, as a sin. And she shows them that food as enjoyment can be not sinful. It can be lovely and beautiful and fabulous. And I just love it. I love the story of it. I love to, wow. I, just, I do really enjoy cooking. But I think I also have a theory that most dyers are excellent cooks. Oh. I've not met a dyer that isn't a really good cook. So because I think that visually you're doing the same thing visually as you are with your taste buds with cooking. Like you you know what to add to make something right. And I feel like it's the same with with dyeing as it as is cooking. Um, oh. Not that I mix the two. <laughs> that uh, would be dangerous. <laughs> yeah. And then my second film that, again, personally, I love, I really loved Cabaret. Like, I just loved the 1920s world of Berlin. I loved, like, the sort of decadence of it. I loved the color. Um, I'm not a huge musical fan, but I liked the musical of it. I just liked the sort of the theater of it all as a film. I just really enjoyed that and the whole story of being different and wanting something new and exciting for your life um and reinventing your life in another country i don't know i just i thought it was a great film and that's yeah that's my second one and then the my third and fourth or my my tie is sort of relates a little bit more to what i do there's a movie by tarsam singh called the fall and it was designed by Ico, who's this incredible designer, or was this incredible designer? Did she hmm? design um, Bram Stoker's Dracula? Dracula, and yeah. And did Estelle. Um, she just has this really incredible sort of sense of design. And um, she did The Fall, which has this whole fantasy story spun through it, and it's set in 1920s Hollywood. But then there's this whole sort of fairy tale that's that's told through it and then illustrated in the film that it's a beautiful film. The costumes are really incredible, but they are begging, begging to be aged, like in my opinion, although maybe that was a a conscious decision between the director and the designer that everything was going to be like right off the bolt, you know, virtually unwashed just crisp, pristine, clean, 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 clean color that when I look at it, I just think it would have been 
would it have been so awful to have like an ombre in there? <laughs> like, would it have been so awful to have dated that, that, that costume? Like, it just, to me, I always look at it and there's this little sort of painful wince of like, oh, I wish that film was aged. <laughs> um, and then the opposite for me is the Alfonso Cuaron film, Children of Men, which so, is... I, I've seen that. Just just in my defense, I have seen that one. <laughs> oh, yay! So, so that film is just so over-the-top, beautifully aged. Like, it's almost like... And I think it's because it's our field that that I'm looking at it going like, wow, those yeah. costumes are really beautifully aged. Like, it's almost distracting to me because I'm so impressed with how great everything looks. Like, everything's been so thought through and so beautiful like just but the costumes have been around for years and years and years and never washed and always dirty and you know there's this whole breakdown to society and it's all demonstrated through the clothes of everything so beautifully aged and i think i said to you when i was when we were talking about this it's like i know some of the people that worked on that film but i've never asked them about it because I don't, you know, I don't want to hear like, oh, yeah. we just all, we got it from the charity shop. Like, that's just the way it was. Like, <laughs> I just think it looks so well thought out and like so consistent. Like nothing sort of popped out as like, oh, well, clearly that actor got that from Prada and we're trying to make it look like, a, you know, <laughs> a beat up jacket. Like everything looks truly authentic. I thought like a beautiful film. Thank you for your recommendations. They were, I'm really glad I had watched one of them actually. <laughs> um, but the other two are being added to my very long and growing list of things I haven't seen. So you are right, I do need to get cracking with that. <laughs> thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been really good. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Me too. Thank you. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Matt. Tune into the next episode where I'll be speaking to the head of costume at the Young Vic Theatre, Sarah Hamza. And if you get a moment, could you please like, follow or subscribe on your podcast platform and follow the Crew Chats podcast on Instagram. Thank you.